All right, so I just want to welcome everybody to uh, SACPON campus at the college. My name is Jesse Harshani, and I'll be moder moderating this session. Um, today's session, as you know, is on the Long Gun Registry, and we're welcoming uh, Chief Tom McKenzie to speak on that. This session will be recorded, and um, just so that you know, SACPA is the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, and it's a nonprofit organization which relies on the contributions of members and session, session attendants and whatnot. Um, I'd like to acknowledge Lethbridge College for their support, as well as the LCSA. And, yeah, so now I'll just talk a little bit about the session today. Today's session will be presented by Chief Tom McKenzie, as I said, and we'll be discussing the usefulness and the uselessness of the long gun registry in limiting gun-related crime. The presentation will be about 30 minutes long with about 30 minutes for questions, so try and think of some questions and some discussion during the session. And, yeah, I'll just give you a little brief run through on the long gun registry before we get started here. The billion dollar long gun registry may be safe for now after a contentious vote on the, in the House of Commons, but debate over its usefulness rages on. A private member's bill to abolish it was narrowly defeated in its third reading in the House of Commons on September 22nd. The legislation to abolish the long gun registry would not have affected the current possession acquisition license process, which all gun owners are currently are required to complete. In 1995, the registry was part of Bill C-868, which requires all guns in Canada to be registered. The bill was partially influenced by a campaign for stricter gun control legislation funded by families of victims in the Equal Polytech massacre in Montreal, where 28 people were shot by a gunman wielding a, legal, a legally obtained rifle. The Canadian Association of Police Boards and the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police came out in favor of keeping the registry, as it can be useful for instances such as domestic assaults, where police can check to see if the weapons registered were registered to the home, or to find out if any registered firearms need to be dealt with in order for individuals to meet bail conditions. That said, the Speaker will evaluate the overall effectiveness of long gun registry and consider it the best bang for your buck scenario in terms of how funds earmarked for public safety programs are being spent. So Chief Tom McKenzie. I'll just give you a little bit of a biography on him. Uh, upon completing the criminal justice program at Lethbridge College, Tom McKenzie joined the, the Lethbridge Regional Police Service in 19, 1976, working his way through the ranks and experiencing nearly all aspects of law enforcement in Lethbridge, and as well as serving as, on several provincial action committees. Tom was sworn in as chief of the LRPS January 1, 2007, after successfully completing, competing for that position. Throughout his career, Chief McKenzie has also been involved with sports, neighborhood associations, criminal justice lectures at the college here, and as an instructor at Athabasca University, just to name a few. So please help me welcome Tom McKenzie. Thanks very much, Jess, and uh, thanks everyone for being here today, and thanks, Axel, for the opportunity. Uh, it's always a great opportunity to come out in the community and engage in some dialogue and some debate about issues. Uh, I guess that's the biggest and best thing about our democracy is the right to have an opinion and uh, the right to disagree on some of the laws that this, the legislation has made in uh, collaboration of their ideas of what they fundamentally think that most citizens want. Often those laws are met with challenges. There's a wide range of things that happen in our legislature from uh, decriminalization of uh, marijuana to uh, registries for, for Canada and everything in between, impaired driving prostitution, uh, a lot of these things you see, and we take different stances. 
um, really in policing, we're in the middle of the road. And I think we've got a good balance of CJ and uh, renewable resources today, do we? Or just most of the CJ's, CJ guys come through for us, eh? <laughs> good. Um, so as, as we move forward with these balances, and, and it's important to remember this, basically we walk in the middle of the road. We, we really don't have that political opinion anymore. Uh, some of the problem in this whole debate is we did wade in. The Chief of Police Association of waded in. The uh, Federation of Police Officers, so that's basically the union, has waded in. And certainly police governance, our boards that manages our police commission here in particular for Lethbridge Regional, made up of aldermanic uh, members, as well as community members from Coaldale and Lethbridge, uh, waded in, and, and it was because they thought it provided for safe communities. So we may not have a political opinion one way or the other, but we are, as a body, uh, responsible to assist in providing information that will help legislature, uh, our legislators make laws that uh, will govern. So we've gone forward, and I'll give you a general overview, and I'll repeat some of this, but just in a way of an introduction, we'll talk a little bit about what the Chiefs of Police Association across Canada voted on. So very clearly, we've got to be careful about what is reported in the paper. A few things clearing up very quickly is after our convention last uh, summer in Edmonton, they came out and said that the, the Chiefs of Police were unanimously in favor of this bill. I can tell you they're not. Everybody that was at that meeting and casted a vote unanimously voted for it. Not every chief in Canada was at that meeting. Some were not asked to dissent, and so they asked in favor, opposed, but there was no dissent. And I can tell you at those conferences when there's 300, 400 people in the room, they move through them quickly. There's not a lot of debate. I think a lot of you may have experiences in boards and channels and stuff you go. The debate comes after. There's lots of dialogue back and forth. Chief Rick Hansen has come up pretty publicly in the paper about his opinion for his service. Uh, my public opinion for our service is that it's an important tool. But it is one tool in an overall firearm strategy. And that's what the Chiefs voted for, is a stronger firearm strategy for all of Canada. It involves tougher punishment. It involves greater search and authorities to go in and, and, and recover weapons that are being used. It involves training. It involves licensing. And then it also involves registry, and some will say there's a duplication there. You have to look at it. We came out and said there was room for improvement. Fiscal responsibility is the big thing. The cost was crazy. Everybody agreed from the beginning that cost was just insane. It was too big. It was too much. They had to improve it. So they weeded it down, and you see many different numbers and quotes that are set there. When it started out, it was going to cost $119 million a year, and they were going to recoup $117 million of that in licensing expenses and recoupable charges they would have done. So it used to be $30, I believe, to register your weapon. They made that free. Um, you know, I guess if you were to look at the Alberta driver's registration and, and, and problems there, how much should they recoup a year? If they wipe that out, what would be the cost of our registry system in Alberta for registering vehicles that we all use every day? Um, so those are the parallels and the things that the government's always trying to match. How do you pay for it? What, what, is, what is feasible and what's not? They've admitted themselves it's a boondoggle. There's too much money spent on it. They've approved it. And they're now saying the long gun registry careful to catch that. It's a long-run registry portion, just one bit of the overall firearms program. It's 4 million to 4.9. That number jumps from 2 to 9 and in between and everywhere there. The report that the RCMP are going with, so the report that I'll marry myself to, is anywhere from 4 to 4.9. Simply, the long-run registry portion 
of the firearms program. So we're not talking about licensing costs, we're not talking about infrastructure, we're not talking about all the other things. Again, it's what we do, or what governments do, right? You get certain pieces of accounting, you get certain statistics, and you report certain expenses to support what you want to do. So that's very careful. Um, so we do continue to say as one piece of an overall strategy, a complete firearm strategy for Canada that talks about tougher penalties for restricting, tougher penalties for sale, import, and export illegally of firearms, greater search provisions for police officers, um, as well as firearm registry that promotes responsible citizenship. And each and every one of us wants to step up and be responsible. Each and every one of us has a different idea about that, what that responsibility looks like. So when we talk as police chiefs, I may have an opinion, a very strong opinion on it. I can tell you it's very mixed in my family of four boys. Uh, I'm the youngest. And uh, it is a mixed opinion by everybody. But what we consider, and when we speak, and I speak, and the chiefs speak for police officers in Canada only in the sense that we speak for our service. Each one of the police officers in our service certainly has his own opinion. But as all of you will learn, when you walk in and you swear the oath, your opinion doesn't matter for squat anymore. It is the opinion of society and the laws that we enforce that, can, that will demand how you conduct yourself and the rules you enforce. The legislation has made rules. We now debate, as a chief, I, I debate, and I am the voice of our service, as directed by our police commission, as to what we will enforce, what policies we will have, and how we'll move forward. In our position, Lethbridge Regional Police Service is the firearms registry, long gun registry is only a tool and an important tool in the overall firearms strategy. I'll now go in and I'll kind of work through here. I apologize a little bit. This weekend was going to be devoted to uh, voting up a little bit on this. I tell you, as the chief, you're uh, sort of the jack of all trades, the master of none. With me today is Dennis Goff. He is our NWEST officer. You'll hear me refer to him a little bit in the speech today. NWEST has taken a position about the gun registry that makes it very difficult for Dennis to express his opinion in debate uh, because it is a policy issue right now that they're working through. But uh, again, Dennis is not accountable for the police service I am, so don't beat him up over our problems. Beat me up and we'll, we'll talk about it, we'll dialogue about it, we'll figure out what the solution is. Also with me is Kristen Harding, my executive coordinator. Uh, she's responsible for a lot of the media and the relations that she actually presents a lot of my programs. So the intent was I had this last week to sit down and review it. I apologize. I'm going to read. It's not really my style. I would rather stand and talk like we have now. Um, but uh, my Friday night and all day Saturday and Sunday was consumed by the tragic loss of our family, uh, the Twig family, uh, Sheldon, his wife Kim, their daughter Lacey, and their granddaughter Grail. And uh, so I haven't had time to sit down and do proper justice to this, but I think it's important to me the request and to be here and talk a little bit about it. So we'll, we'll move forward. So you bear with me. I'll, I'll step into that and we'll try and meet the 30-minute uh, deadline that we have and get everybody out of class on time and everybody else home in time to make supper and be ready. So uh, we'll go back right to the formality. And good afternoon and thank you for having me here to speak with you today about the Canadian Firearms Registry. I know that a lot of people have strong feelings about this particular initiative, some in favor, some against. My intention today is to turn this into, a, not to turn this into a political debate, but to have a good dialogue and discussion. I'd just like to provide you some of the information about the registry, why it is in place, in policing, and, and try to answer any questions that you might have. 
Last month, I'm sure you recall, the Conservative government put forward a bill to scrap the gun registry. And leading up to the vote, there was a lot of discussion in the, in the news about Bill C-39, C-391, which was ultimately defeated. But since uh, the Conservatives have said they're going to try again, I think it's safe to say... I'll pick up all the papers it's, uh, I think it's safe to say that it will remain under fire for some time. Again, I think we have to really look sometimes about the middle of the road and the movement here, and really it's just become more of a political boondoggle than actual fight about the registry. It's done a good job of gaining votes and support for the Conservatives. It's done a good job of separating parties, the Liberals, standard Peace, all have different and dissenting opinions of the party now. Political strategy or not, I'm not sure. Our police supports the gun registry as part of an overall national firearm strategy, but we recognize the registry alone is not a panacea to ending gun crime in Canada. It's just one tool that should be considered as one component in a larger framework. I think it's also important and frankly only fair to point out that in its present state there's room for improvement, costs, the actual decriminalization of registration concerns uh, impacting those lawful and very good gun owners that we have in our country. In August, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, which I am and other chiefs across the country are members of, held its annual conference in Edmonton. One of the resolutions we drafted was in support of a firearms policing or strategy, so a firearms policing strategy, an overall picture that we talked about a little bit earlier. Changing the gun registry is one element of such a strategy, but there are a number of other necessary components, including licensing provisions, policy standards, officer training around firearms, an integration between law enforcement agencies. How do we actually move this information from eastern Canada to western Canada? Our reserve is an area that's thought to be good for smuggling weapons, but going into Ontario. And look at those reserves that border the lakes. And the talk about gun smuggling, tobacco smuggling, people smuggling, and all those things. Our border is very porous. There's a lot there. How do we share and how do we gain that information and then intelligence back and forth? So we have to have a strong strategy there. And West come along helping help us with that, the National Weapons Enforcement Strategy Team, or? team. thank you. A big part of the problem with registries over the years, inaccurate and exaggerated statements about its use have created controversy and clouded its actual intent and benefit to law enforcement. It is naive to think that all criminals register their guns. The reality is most don't, but some do. In the summer, we executed a search warrant at a home here in the city as part of a drug investigation, and we recovered a combination of registered and unregistered weapons. Supports both sides of the arguments. Criminals don't register, but criminals do. We get them, we can find them, we can return them. The registry certainly is not going to stop members from shooting at one another. And no, it isn't going to lead police 100% of the time to locations where weapons are being stockpiled. But it is one source of information even if it's limited information that serves as a practical purpose for law enforcement. There's a number of things the registry won't do. Again, it's not the ultimate solution, solution to addressing gun crime, but it does have its place in our society. The Lethbridge Regional Police Service, along with other agencies in the country, access the registry on a regular basis, and at the end of the August, the registry provided us with some local data. Before I go into these numbers, I just need to point out but the analyst at the registry included data from the Lethbridge area, so we can go into the national system and pull it, because they like to pool things, and so it's in our area. So that equates to the city and county of Lethbridge, Cold Elk, Barrens, Nobleford, and Kohlers. Quite a large area when you think about it. And 
doesn't involve a lot of people, but it is a large area. So it's reasonable to conclude that while the majority of the queries were likely done by our service, some will have been done by the RCMP. Should also maybe point out that in some situations there might be duplicate queries in our organization because Dennis might be following up on something. Our exhibits personnel might be following up on something as well as our frontline officers. In 2008, the registry was queried 1,481 times by law enforcement in the Lethbridge area. Last year was slightly higher at 1,560 queries. And year to date, until August 31st, which is a funny year to date, but that's how systems work and computers and pulling information, we're at uh, 1,223. So in 2009, if you were to break down these 1,560 queries, work out to an average of just over four queries a day. Fortunately, I don't have any analysis to show the exact reason we queried the registry. All these types are on all these types and queries, but generally speaking, searches are typically not a matter of routine inquiry. They're usually done for a specific purpose. You've heard a lot of the debate going on that there's an automatic query so that everybody that please checks is automatically queried. Not true. Our system is not set up to do an automatic query. It's part of policy and procedures that every time our officers go through a domestic violence complaint, we're looking for dispatch to do that query. There's a high preponderance of weapons and domestic violence associated to murder in Canada. That's one of the leading causes of murder in Canada is domestic violence. So we're talking about and one of the most dangerous calls the police are dispatched to is domestic disturbance. These kinds of incidents are more often fueled by emotion that people may not react rationally. Put a bit of perspective to that. Statistically speaking, most homicides in Canada occur in a domestic situation. When our members respond to a domestic complaint, our dispatchers will likely check for any firearms that may be registered to the parties involved while members are en route to that call. This is done for the member's safety, the safety of the subject, the victim, and the public. There are also occasions where mental illness or other situational illnesses make it necessary for police to seize firearms to protect the owner from harming themselves or others. Mental health issues sometimes cause people to forget what firearms they have or to refuse to provide information. When the courts determine the firearms must be seized, the registry provides one source to confirm that we've actually seized all of those weapons, again, if they were all properly registered. In addition, the registry can be used as an investigational tool before we execute search warrants to determine if firearms are present and develop an appropriate risk assessment and tactical plan for entry. Another use is in the help to reunite lost or stolen weapons with their lawful owners. So we're often recovering stolen weapons, and hopefully they're registered, and hopefully we have a serial number on that weapon that hasn't been obliterated, and we can return it to the owner. As I mentioned, queries may be done by our dispatchers, but they also may be done on the frontline members, exhibit technicians, and also Sergeant Goff. And if you aren't familiar with NWEST, its uh, essence is an integrated unit managed by the RCMP that assists police agencies in gathering evidence to help prosecute people or organizations involved in legal movement and criminal use of firearms. In our organization, Sergeant Goff is probably responsible for a good number of the local queries as part of his duties with NOS. So a lot of those numbers may come from his administrative work and his follow-up, as well as the frontline policing he does in providing assistance to all policing agencies in Southern Alberta. According to the information that was provided by the registry, in the Lethbridge area we have 6,411 registered owners who collectively possess 30,046 uh, 30, firearms. So 6,400 people have just over 30,000 firearms. 
26,304 of these firearms are rifles and shotguns, and I don't think that surprises anybody. That's what Southern Alberta ranching farming is all about, is long guns, hunting, and, uh, and different aspects of that. However, there are also 2,611 restricted handguns and 766 prohibited handguns. Generally speaking, most handguns are restricted are those with a barrel length of four and a quarter inches, so normally a police weapon and a handgun of that sort of nature are lower, and then those with a barrel lower that are prohibited. Just by way of a short history lesson, when legislation changed in 1998, prohibited firearms, something like a Smith & Wesson revolver or a Saturday Night Special, became prohibited firearms. We actually used to carry, as a detective when I was there, I'd, I'd have to get Dennis to remind me, a barrel length, very short barrel length. Uh, some of us had five shot Smith & Wesson revolvers, others of us had six. Those would be a complete prohibited weapon now, Dennis, right? So we have to go to longer barrel length, and now our guys carry different. We've gone over to the 9mm and the 40 cals, and most of all carry 40 caliber handguns now, so they're all of a larger size. You don't get them that small. Uh, anyone who owned one was able to have it grandfathered, though, when we talked about those prohibited weapons, so we still have a few of these around. I believe most of those 30,000 registered gun owners are law-abiding citizens. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm sure there's a lot of hunters in the mix, some collectors, and probably a number of recreational shooting enthusiasts. Whatever the case may be, owning a gun in Canada, much like possessing a driver's license, is a privilege. We all have a responsibility to work together and maintain public safety. And I think each and every one of us enjoys that responsibility and takes it quite seriously. In summary, there are a few things that gun ownership just doesn't do, but there are a number that it does. And for that reason, it has its place in law enforcement. Assessing the registry and retrieving information about the quantity and the type of firearms present in a specific location lends itself to officer and public safety. The registry enhances our ability to trace and return lost stolen firearms, assist us in investigation, risk assessments, and pre-planning initiatives prior to executing of a search warrant or other tactical operations and promotes individual social responsibility. Our service, along with the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, as well as the Alberta Association of Chiefs of Police, supports the licensing of firearms owners, as well as the registration of all firearms as part of a national firearms strategy. No one element of an overall firearms framework can stand alone. Each can only be considered as a one tool that is available to law enforcement. Nor can public safety be the responsibility of one agency or group. It's an opportunity for all of us to work together and find solutions that best serve our communities. And thank you, and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have for me. I'm not sure where we're going as far as process now in the, in the program. If there's a counter opinion, I don't see much charge or so I'd say so. Okay. Well, first of all, we'll just give Tom Kinsey a round of applause. And, yeah, I invite you guys now, if you do have any questions or just any um, background or anything that you're unsure about um, that you'd like Chief McKenzie's opinion on, uh, now would be a really good time to ask. Um, just understanding the program that you guys are in, this is going to be something that's going to obviously affect you guys in your futures and um, heading out into these kinds of situations. So, um, yeah, I'd invite you now, um, as you ask your questions, we just ask that you just state your name. And then, yeah, keep your, keep your questions brief, maybe to one or two. And, yeah. So, any questions? You alluded to the, uh, our Aboriginal, uh, the, the uh, Aboriginal people. 
And uh, this is a year that we're quite concerned about our relationships with the Aboriginal people. It's tragic you lost a colleague. Um, I wonder though, and you did say that there was a concern about the importation of, of weapons into the reserves. And I wonder how you see that in, in, as a, a factor in this whole thing. Is, is this a, a real concern? And what what well, we have seen from across Canada from analysis things that come into Canada. Western Canada, the reserves in Western Canada as far as a native issue, aren't a huge source of crime done in Canada. Eastern Canada a little different with the situation in Montreal and Mohawk Islands. They're fairly involved in weapons trafficking. Natives in Western Canada it's not a gun crime on the reserves in Western Canada is not a huge issue as far as importation of legal guns. Most of the illegal guns that come into Canada, especially Western Canada, are brought in by non-natives. It's more of an organized crime issue. Uh, it's more smuggling on a small scale than you can see in Eastern Canada here. You might just build on that. The reason you see that, and it's not necessarily all First Nations groups either. They're involved, but what, there is a great opportunity because of the poverty of those reserves. So you can go work for minimum wage, and you can get involved with us, much the same as we see with uh, drug uh, trafficking and all those other things. Organized crime is a business, and it's a big business. And they will leverage it whichever way they can, and they will get whoever they can to work in it, and they'll, they'll take advantage of it. So uh, certainly there's some First Nations component, but a lot of it is conduit and ways. And obviously the, the drug situation is a big thing related to that. Most illegal weapons find their, their use in extortion, in violence to support illegal activity, and the biggest illegal <coughs> activity that's in works is public drug trafficking, the protection of grow-ups and the syndicates and educations. And I mean also if I mean there's a need to eradicate a competing group, you're probably going to use a smuggled or a stolen or an unidentifiable weapon. Of course, they're not going to register those guns, so there we go. They can spiral that whole red street of paper. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Terry Shillington. Um, uh, I think a lot of domestic violence uh, is uh, uh, involves not long guns, but whatever you call them, short guns, <coughs> handguns. Um, would you remind me whether there's any registry for handguns and, and smaller weapons, or... Uh, because this is long gun registry, so what's with them? Uh, you have to be licensed to own a handgun or a long gun. There is very clearly a registry for prohibited or restricted weapons. Handguns fall in that. Nobody's even debating that. It's a long gun registry that people don't want. So we take for granted that the, the handgun registry is valid. Okay. The handgun registry has been in existence in Canada since 1934. Okay, thank you. And I mean, there's all sorts of stabbings, there's beatings, there's everything, domestic violence. And it's, and it's an example of where emotional control goes, and, and there's not real rational thought when some of those happen. Um, this summer we attended at a domestic violence situation, and as we left the house with, with, with the female partner, the male partner was seen walking through the house with the long man. Um, our officers confronted him, and he said, something for me. somebody paid, and it was more of a suicidal threat. And, and I mean, again, there's that emotional level. It's very challenging to understand, but sometimes that's the thought perception. Some people will just kill themselves, I'll show her or him or them, and it's, it's sad. Um, that weapon was registered to that house, 
that was not registered to that individual. There was another shotgun in that home that was registered unregistered. Uh, registered. So, so once we queried that location, we're aware of the weapons, we're there, we can remove them. So there's an example. Now this gentleman's taken to the hospital. He's released. Next time there's an emotional turmoil, we've got those weapons and we're not getting returned. Um, like you said, uh, that like Lethbridge doesn't, um, like when they respond to calls, it's not automatically, um, the registry's not automatically looked into. So when an officer goes to a call, who, is it the officer that requires that the registry is checked, or is it, like, how does that? Usually the officer make the inquiry once in a while, the dispatch will do that on their own because they're thinking ahead. Uh, that experience intertwines are great tremendous support for us with their eyes and ears before we get there. Well, I guess most of their ears when they're taking a call. And they're listening to individuals and they're thinking about the background, so they're, they're going to send out. We do some automatic locations and queries, so if we're dispatching, a lot of automatic location query will come up in the system and say we've been there before, and what the reason is, and they'll check it. But in most situations, it's the officer. And that's the other debate you hear sometimes. Most officers, well, not most officers, all officers, and we train, train, train about it as officer safety, as you approach each and every situation as if that individual is armed or going to be armed. Um, sometimes brings about aggressive behavior, and unfortunately there's a number of instances to support that, that officer safety is number one. So our guys will necessarily go in there with that idea in mind how to protect themselves, and they're particularly well aware of it when a dispute is in progress, whether it's men fighting on the street, or domestic assault, or robbery, or those things, and of course the robbery kind of goes about the same, right? What about, uh, like, um, do they check them for simple um, like pulling someone over for any type of traffic violation or when they tap into those, into those uh, registries? If there was a reason that I thought they should have to, if there was a fear of safety, but I can tell you that most of our officers would not be doing that. And in fact, some of our officers said they're not even using it that, that often at all the registries. So it's uh, more of that investigational tool. It's more of a high risk incident that they're, they're sort of using it, but it's not really a common query uh, on the street daily. Are they uh, Aboriginal people required to register their firearms, whether on or off the reserve? Thank you. All the firearm laws that are currently in place in Canada apply to Aboriginal people. All the, all the firearm laws that are in, in place right now apply equally to Aboriginal people across Canada as well. When the registry was first brought in in the new Firearms Act, there was some temporary exemptions made as well as some additional resources the government put towards getting licenses on the reserve of things, but 100% of the law applied to Aboriginal is equal. So. Thank you. My name is Clint Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for coming, Tom. It took a while to get it organized, but I'm glad we did. Uh, could you tell me exactly what, how it would affect your, your police force uh, if the ongoing registry had been scrapped? What exactly would have how, how would it affect the day-to-day operations? It would have bought, removed that one small tool or that one small portion of our overall strategy. We would still have had licensing. We still would have had a registry to actually prohibit weapons and not to depend on it helping us. And so we would have continued on as we did before we had it. And, uh, is it a benefit? Yes. Is it a panacea? No. As we've said, uh, it's not the end all the be all, but it is one tool in the overall strategy. So we would continue on pretty much as well as we did. It might be, uh, reduce um, 
some of our ability to create some things, but we would, uh, you know, certainly, like I said, when we approach situations as a frontline officer, we're going in there with officer safety in mind, with community safety in mind. And, um, you know, it's not, as you can see, the number of queries, but I would say heavily queried in, in, in Southern Alberta. We are averages four times a day. I think the numbers that was bounced around just over 11,000 a day across Canada, right? But as I understand it correctly, is that all the billion dollars worth of information would be... Um, on the long gun portion of it, but again, that billion is combined. Yeah. There's that Because uh, they're not really communicating that prohibited in the handgun registry. doesn't really communicate with the long gun registry. So some of that money was spent to try and create a system that would better communicate. Technology being what it, what it is, they rolled over systems, they changed the systems, they didn't get it. Went from one ministry to another ministry, it went from one organization to another organization. So there's lots of movement and transfer going on there that left it. Um, you know, if you read into it, the RCMP are saying the actual physical cost of that registry is 4 and 4.9. That number's been as low as 2 and as high as 9, I think, Dennis, right? So, so, so I don't know if they went to the happy middle or not. Um, but certainly overall, I think last year was $68 million spent on the firearms program. So per year, $68 million. A billion was a figure that kind of came together over a number of years, all right. But still $68 million is a lot of money per year overhead. So, yeah. The actual savings, uh, the actual information we're going to lose, I guess is primarily just the registration of long guns at a location where they would be in Canada. The argument made, if I may, the argument can be made that, I mean, what, if one life, if it saves one life, it would be worth spending that kind of money, I suppose, you could save. But on the other hand, if that money is spent more wisely, you may save more than one life. Lots of crime prevention programs, uh, maybe anti-smuggling efforts and drug crime efforts, certainly. Uh, we would argue as a policing organization that it's the responsibility of the government of Canada to provide for safe communities across Canada in many different ways. Uh, our $23 million budget uh, here at Toronto Police Services is dispersed in many different ways from crime prevention right to the investigation of very serious major crimes. It's dispersed and it's leveled out at different levels, of course. Like any, any business, you have different areas that are funded greater than others and you move forward at, at advancing it. Uh, that, yes, it, it, it may well be that it would be money better spent for crime prevention and really truly significant firearms program than registering a bunch of weapons that belong to mostly law-abiding citizens. Um, yeah, one life. Uh, as crash as it seems, I think the, the value of one life is $1.24 million. We look at some business cases and they say the impact of the loss of one individual is $1.24 million. I don't know how these guys come up with the capture or how much they do. <laughs> yeah, I have one more question. Uh, guns and gangs seem to be one of your major uh, problems. Are they treating these gangs uh, for penalties? Are they being serious enough to deter them from spreading or increasing or something like that? It seems like it's taking the slap on the wrist and they go around the corner and commit another crime. So, Maybe a lot of these uh, gun situations are related to gangs, and there's better, you know, enforcement—not enforcement so much—but the penalties are too lenient. 
In our current legislation, the penalties are there, but we ever reach the maximums not very often, and it's probably the problem in a lot of areas. Um, can you imagine the first time we throw about five people in jail for life for breaking entry to a residence, which is the maximum penalty allowed? I personally think it probably slow things down, but I also think it's not the right answer. Life in prison for house breaking entry. There's better ways, and it depends where we are in the system, and that's the beauty about our justice system in Canada. It's one of the best in the world, but it's it's just amazingly complicated what appears to be very simple. From areas of restorative justice to deal with the first time breaking in or offending. So we can divert him without any punishment or any criminal record and get him the help or her the help that they need to go right to life imprisonment for maybe the guy that's, that's a chronic breaking in or offender, a dangerous offender if you would, and then we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. Part of the overall firearm strategy of the Chiefs is tougher penalties. Certain minimum sentencing is four years for an offense committed with the firearm. Um, they get around that sometimes, um, but it's there. They're looking to increase that. They're talking about gun crime that supports organized crime and tougher penalties, and so we're all for that, and we're all for working through that. So it's just one portion of it. There's a question over here. No? Yeah, a box a bit left. Are going to answer some other way? Okay. Uh, Mary Shillington, I'm a retired counselor, so I've worked with lots of people around domestic violence. Have we stats about uh, the, the guns used where where guns are involved? Do we know are they registered or unregistered? Are they handguns? Are they long? long? I don't have those with me today. If we did the research, we could find that for our back. back. Um, well, I'd have to give an anecdotal. Well, Dennis, I don't know if you have something. What would be your guess? I guess the number of firearms used in domestic violence that are registered versus unregistered. I would probably say the higher percentile, 80 to, 80 to 90 percent, are probably registered. Are registered. Are registered. Because remember, these are people that are, for the most part, law-abiding citizens that are strong components of parts of our community. We know that domestic violence hits us from, uh, from all levels and all classes and all races. And for the most part, they're in control, they're violence issues, but they're pretty much law-abiding citizens. So they, they go into accepting violence, accepting domestic situations. They're not doing that to the, the person on the street. They're doing it to their partner. That's right. In most situations, well, I, I would argue that they're, if it's control, because it is control, they're making a choice whether they're being violent. I think you. I mentioned this more. It's yeah. domestic violence issues. Also, control issues. My need to control the other. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for clarifying it again. Not that yeah. I don't want it to. Yeah. As sure as that breakdown of firearms, because the majority of guns in Canada are, in fact, long guns. Mm -hmm. And the majority of long guns in Canada are, in fact, registered. Mm -hmm. Statistically, you'll find most guns involved in domestics are registered long guns. Well, they're available, but that's what's out there as far as the firearm. The whole domestic violence argument, uh, attach it to firearms is kind of a, that's more of a political issue. Uh, if there's domestic violence in a home, it doesn't matter whether there's a firearm or not there. That issue's still going to happen. Mm -hmm. Whether there's a gun or a knife or a baseball bat or a hat, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole connection of registry to prevent domestic violence, it's a little fancy, so that's probably the Mr. Gillette, I have one other question, but I'm interested in the urban rural divide. That's what really created the big opposition to, to the registry in the first place, quite apart from the cost. I don't need the political aspect, but as a, an urban, peaceful urban uh, dweller, um, 
I really would like to understand why uh, the opposition of the rural people is so strong. I realize that they they need to have guns for hunting and maybe some protection from bears and what else. <laughs> but uh, how, how, how are we going to get around this impasse? And what, what impact is it going to have on these rural people if, if you have them? They're already registering their, their guns, I believe, most of them. Are they? Yes, they got registered. Well, I, I, I just feel understand exactly. I think that whole question goes back to more of a, a situation in Canada. Canada's went from a rural society to an urban society. Yeah. An urban society, for the most part, is never supported of firearms. It's just a typical aspect of being an urban dwelling. You don't have it as a youth. I'm a farm kid. I grew up on a farm in North Alberta. And there's been a whole shift in the pattern of thinking about firearms. As a kid, I could ride down a side street with a 22 turn across the back and nobody would take a twice book. I'm not doing anything illegal. The same kid could do that today on the outskirts of Lethbridge. He's still not doing anything illegal, but there'd be a fire alarm police response to it, right? And he'd be taken down by a gunpoint by police. He's still not doing anything different. There's still no lobbying broken. But there's been a real shift in the attitude towards firearms, period. And a lot of this is a result of legislation that's been brought in, but it's more of that switch to an urban society. They're not a tool anymore. In most people's view, they're not a tool anymore. Like when you hear people talk about guns, their only purpose is killing people. Well, that's not the case, but that's the idea that's out there. So, gun control in Canada is very much an emotional issue to a lot of people. And most gun control legislation is an emotional response to one incident. And what happens is, is the urban and the rural argument, I think, is created uh, to foster political argument. Right. And it's sort of like it's also you're seeing east-west creeping into there now. Well, I'm going to tell you that Ontario probably has a greater population of hundreds than what all of Alberta does. Uh, and certainly the farm registry, the farm indication there is it is. It's still very much a tool. Uh, one of my brothers is, is dead set against the law that uh, usually has a high power rifle right in his in his back back step because when he's calving, coyotes are coming right into his pants and they're there again. And he says, like, I don't have time to store that weapon safely. I have that weapon loaded because when I get up and my dog's going nuts, I go running out the door and taking a loaded gun and I'm going to get those titles. I can't lose the cops. Uh, but he's very responsible. He, he controls that firearm and he watches it. Now uh, the brother lives in the city. He says, well, it's just a stupid. You don't need it. But then he hears that argument. He says, okay. He says, when was the last time you ever went hunting? <laughs> I says, well, I don't hunt anymore. But when I did, and there's a tremendous amount of guys, and actually my brother that's on the farm now, we're raised in the city, but my, my mom's side of the family all comes from a strong farming background. And so him and another brother have gone back out. Um, he hunted more when he was living in the city working on the railroad than he ever has when he's on the farm. He's got no time to hunt when he's on the farm anymore. So, and, and I mean, there's a tremendous amount of urban people. But, I mean, uh, you know, the instructor that was here, Butch, that's left, Butch Lee is a, is a great hunter. He teaches firearms safety. He, understands everything about weapons. He understands the impacts of it. He's a very, very responsible owner. And he does a lot of target practice. He does a lot of hunting and those sorts of things. And so That's another thing. I, the, the personal respect for uh, possessing uh, a weapon like that is, is something that is, is slick, slick considerably. And you gave some thought or some consideration around it when you register your weapon. It cues you to think about safety and everything else. But that argument fails in that Licensing does the same damn thing. When I go down and get my possession-only license and, and firearm acquisition license, for um, some proper words here, no, that's firearm. Possession acquisition. Possession acquisition. You think about that, and you have to qualify. 
training stuff now. So it's, I mean, Maybe I'm, I'm enlarging on those questions because uh, I'm a city dweller and, and uh, the long term. Drop in the farm. Drop in the farm, yeah. And we had a donation managers and so on. But uh, I'm, I'm still having trouble understanding the rural passion about this um, because um, uh, with the long term registry, you can still register as an issue coyotes and, uh, and maybe have to pay 25 or 50 bucks to register it, but that's not a big uh, item on a, in a rural uh, budget. So I, am I missing something? Does the long gun registry prevent your friend, your your brother, from uh, having the rifle loaded and ready for the kindness or in The registration of that weapon does not. The the, the legislation and the, the criminal code around the safe storage of firearms sure has helped us. And I mean, his kids are growing, and when his kids were small, that was a whole different perspective. But now him and his wife live on the farm, so this is cool. <laughs> and I mean, it's a big thing to laugh. Does he have to pay? Is there still a cost for the registry, or is that being waived? We're trying to waive it. So it's really just time and effort to, to go and get it, get the reg to register it. Do you have to register every year, or is it just registered once? Once, and then one time. One time. And it's transferred within the registry if it's sold to somebody else. Sold to somebody else. Like, you know, we all have to register our vehicle. This, like, this is the argument that keeps coming with the firearms, and this is where a lot of the rural opposition to the registry is. Yeah, register the don't have to register the uh, no. no, okay. This is where the, the debate comes in over the registry, and the chief touched on briefly with decriminalization. You see the car comparison, licensure dog, all these comparisons. A lot of the rural opposition is if you can fail to register your car or your dog, you're not a criminal. In Canada, I know they fail to register your gun, you're a criminal. And that's where a lot of the opposition to the gun registry is. So they defend their lawful right, and some of their sales. I'll pick on my brother, he's my family, and I don't think anybody just pick on me for picking on my brother. But he says, the government just wants to know more about me. And I said, you know what, um, you know, you know, all we need to know about you before you register I mean, that little piece of information is going to be there. And then he goes to the other argument you sometimes hear. It's just the government's way of knowing where all the guns are, so when they come to take over, they know where to come and get the guns. The British idea of gun registry, because they, everybody registered the guns, and then if there was an uprising, people would get those weapons. Yeah. And I said, I don't think yeah. Canada's going to go to war. Yeah, I mean, we have done this too often in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but they're based on a lot of yeah. past history. Yeah. Sorry. Back here. I want to ask you more after this one. It, it, uh, there was a story, whether it's story or fact or what, but they said when the gun registry came in, it caused the crime rate with knives to go up. Was that true or false? I haven't heard that one before. Dennis, of you, but I don't. But I would say that's a zero impact. People are going to go to the weapon of choice all the time, and uh, knives are really easy to conceal. Um, and in fact, anything knives have caused gun issues to go up. People got tired of taking a, a, a knife to a gunfight. It's the term we all joke about. So you see an escalation of violence, and it starts out. One of the things that was happening here, for example, is in bars and nightclubs, there was fighting going on. People started to feel intimidated, and the knives came along. The knives came out and stabbed. Well, now somebody's been stabbed, now they're taking guns with them to the bar. And those guns are sometimes stolen, or sometimes blown up parents, or sometimes airsoft, pellet guns, and whatnot. And the number of incidents we've seen with intimidation with weapons in our, in our community is growing. The shooting of 20,000 last year, now it's very directly gun and drug related. And that's a 9mm, 15 rounds fired on 20,000 you rate in an urban area. Is that a registered gun? Probably not. 
at the beginning of the Shinnah Prevented No. It's again, it's about that, that picture, and it's about all these beliefs and just sort of anecdotal attitudes that people have about it. Um, you know, if we went down and analyzed it, I don't, I don't think you could say that was, that was fair at all. It in its sense went up over guns. Now, thank God gun crime is still a relatively small thing in Canada. The murder is a relatively small thing in Canada when you compare to, you know, there's cities in the States that have more gun, uh, more murders in a year than we have in all of Canada. We live in a very responsible society, and that might go back to that argument. Most people have argued, why, why does a responsible government have to face the chance of being a criminal and not registering the weapon? Yeah, that's, that's one of them. Uh, has the, the American uh, Rifle Association had any impact on what people think about gun registry here in Canada? I suspect strongly we do have... Get my opinion, certainly. I mean, that's... What, what do we do? We mirror the Americans. Yeah. We see all of the stuff down there. Uh, we, we charge forward and all the good stuff, but we uh, forget to negate the bad stuff. And they always say we're about five years behind. Uh, you can see that in crime trends. You can see that in a lot of things. Certainly a lot of pro, uh, you know, gun advocates in, in the States. I mean, that's, they're going to fight from a dead cold hand, and that attitude comes up, and it, it, it influences a lot. I, I like to think we as Canadians are a lot more rational than that. We don't fight some of their own argument. I think overall there. It's a big rule of the Constitution that they're going through that. That's right. They're going to be around. We have time for just a couple more questions. So. One more. As, as a policing agency, what would you like to see us as citizens do to support that there's more tools around, in addition to the damage, to more tools? Uh, what could we be doing to support your efforts to keep keep us safe? I'm not sure who you will. I'm not sure who you will talk to after the next federal election. <laughs> Find that MP. Uh, let him know how you feel about it, and whichever way it is. That's that's how our MPs make legislation, is by hearing and debating with people what's going on. Talk to our MLAs, talk to our mayor and council. Um, there's all different levels of legislation around bylaws. You can't fire or discharge a firearm in the city electric unless you get my permission. Right. Bylaws that are all forever. Or is it coming into effect? They fire the Canada Yeah. They get my permission, and then basically all that does is they say, Chief, we want to fire the cannon. They say, go ahead, and then we get 100 calls about why are they firing it. Where's the gunfire coming from? Mm-hmm. We can answer that. Yeah. The idea was to keep us informed so we would also know where they were. Transalpha set off a whole bunch of explosions last year up on the north side of the subdivisions. They fused wires to get a now with explosions. It sounds just like gunshots. So they approached with us. So we certainly have bylaws around discharging use of firearms. Uh, I mean, you look at the local issue around the, uh, the gun range here in town, and the controversy was strong on that, when the bullet escaping from, from that gun range. Um, you know, the last two incidents, we've been able to show they weren't the gun range, and the gun range, again, is very responsible, very good individuals that, you know, exercise their privilege to go out and pick up the sport they like. And so it's about voicing those opinions and, you know, talking about where is the punishment these guys are using crimes. What are we going to do to make an issue and make a change in domestic violence? Or domestic violence action team is always looking for support. There's a breakfast with the guys tomorrow morning at 7.30 to watch to talk about domestic violence in our community. And we're going to speak there. And um, there is an opportunity coming up on the 24th, is it? Uh, another event that talks around domestic violence. Why are we doing things? 
Uh, our missing sister vigils in the community. Well, show your voice there. Talk about the murder and the disappearance of our First Nations people and the violence that's related to it. And, and I think talk about that holistic approach. And really, crime on its own is going to go like this. Because we get to that. At a certain point, we change our attitudes. And all of society starts to speak up. And when we all decide to speak up against the culture um, that is made up of violence, whether it be movies, whether it be the songs you sing, whether it be the actions we display, whether it's the, uh, you know, when you talk about First Nations folks, and there's a big concern there with the uh, replication of, of American street gangs on the reserve. So these guys are walking around like blood and crips. And the strong voices of the First Nation community come out and say, if you want to be a warrior, be a warrior. A warrior takes care of, provides for his family, is present in his home, and tutors his kids in the way of life. Takes care and loves and cares compassionately for his wife. And he plays an important role in society. And he does not tolerate violence and he does not accept disrespect or anything else for individuals. So it's about having that voice and making it clear, sharing it with our kids, sharing it with our loved ones. It's just not acceptable to use violence to bring about the pain. That guy is a tool of violence. It's safe that. It's all of it are. And if we speak out and make the legislature hear that so that they will make legislation that will protect that. And if we support those in our community that cry out against social injustice, then we can make a difference. Because it's not necessarily legislators who have to convince, it's each other. Your question, There was a, recently in Toronto, there was a police chief uh, rounded up a bunch of illegal guns and and confiscated them. Uh, do you have any comments on that kind of situation? Or are, you, are you planning on going out and looking for unregistered guns and confiscating them? I'd love to be able to get all the unregistered and unlicensed, prohibited, and restricted weapons off our street and out of the hands of criminals. Yes, you bet. Uh, would I necessarily agree in the level that Toronto does? I think what you're probably referring to is the long guns that were seized by Toronto in relation to guys that did not register. I did not renew their licenses and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, we have Amnesty in Alberta. Alberta's taking a completely useful approach for it. Those notifications come to Dennis and we're not acting on them. We act on restricted and prohibited weapons because we feel those are dangerous and serious. The long gun, no, because the Amnesty, uh, we're not going to go out and do an awful lot in that area because there's an Amnesty, there's no charge, there's nothing late. So then we are overstepping our bounds. We've heard from our legislature that they're not interested in enforcing that portion. So we're not going to go and abuse that authority. But if I knew there was some illegal gun, you bet. That's not everybody. Okay, <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Back there. Um, I'm not sure how to word this question or where it's really where I'm going with it, but um, bottom line, guns are stolen. Guns are stolen from law-abiding citizens, whether they're registered or not registered. Um, What's the possibilities or what is done to prevent, um, like say, a registered gun stolen from a law by citizen and used in a crime, that that person is pinned with the crime? Or I know the onus is on um, the owner to report uh, a registered gun that's stolen, but what is done to, I've never really heard much, of, even when I registered my guns and whatnot, that the onus is on me if my gun is stolen to report it to the police. Like I, maybe a gun stolen and I don't report that to the register. What is the probability or possibility or statistics or um, 
law-abiding citizens that have not committed to commit that crime. So I guess spinning it a little bit, what you're saying is, is if that registered gun is stolen and used to commit a crime, then you're going to be falsely accused of that crime because it was your gun. And you may not even realize it was stolen, and quite often that does happen. Um, you know, we will go back to drugs and those sorts of things. There's situations where kids will, will steal from parents, um, husbands from wives, wives from husbands, addicted people from non-addicted people to support habits. Um, so the weapons could go missing by a youth that's either being extorted by a drug dealer who wanted to have guns or to sell to get monies for drugs um, and, and those sorts of things. And that person may not even know that they're missing. That gun has gone and used and committed in an offense. Uh, we have to be able to prove beyond a doubt in the courts, we have to be able to arrest on reasonable and probable grounds, which is not just stated in the court as reasonable grounds, but it means reasonable grounds, that you actually committed the offense. So if your weapon was used to kill somebody in Calgary tonight, and we know that you're here, and you check and say that gun was registered, it's going to lead to your credibility because I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm not sure when that gun went missing, but I was here last night, so you have the alibi. We're not going to be able to link you to that crime. A little bit more tricky, maybe, if the gun incident happened here last night, but the same sort of thing. We're going to step through that, and we're going to have to be able to prove the actual action, right? Um, not much difference than uh, the gun, the truck that was used in the uh, armed robbery at the shopper's drug line that something was a stolen truck. Um, sure, we went back to talk to the owner, but I mean, he had reported it stolen at the time, so it makes it a little bit easier. But there are situations where vehicles are stolen overnight and they're used on, you know, the crime spree, and we recover the, the stolen vehicle, but we don't get the occupants in the run from us. Well, the first place you start is back with the registry owner in the car, and you have a conversation with them, but most of the time we're not going to store them, we get them up. Does that answer that fair? Yeah. But it's, it's a fair consideration that people might be worried about, right? So that kind of gets associated with me. So that also sort of response generates the other answer that the argument that we might use to support registry you're aware of that. You're going to really make sure that your registered weapon is secured safely and taken care of, right? Licensing of you will do the same thing. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chief, Chief, uh, Chief Tom McKenzie, for coming and speaking. And just to let you guys know, if you want more information on this session or if you want to hear the audio again, if there's something that you missed, you can go to www.sacpa.ca. And there should be audio on there as well as a little brief run through. So, yeah, thanks again. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for being here and your questions. And anytime we can answer any questions for you, please give us a call.